0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: Trump went through the campaign saying only nice things about Putin and has apparently a great number of economic dealings in Russia.
0: The Trump-Putin bromance amid unprecedented findings of Russian interference in our presidential election. Well, what does this bode for the state of the world in our foreign affairs? We ask a guy who knows a Bolshevik load about these matters. Stay with us. This episode of Full Disclosure is made possible by the support of the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Business Foundation, located in Richmond. With a commitment to driving the future of business through the power of creativity, the VCU School of Business educates more than 4,000 students in bachelor's, master's, certificate, and doctoral programs accredited by AACSB International. In the heart of a dynamic urban public university, discover creativity at work. Visit business.vcu.edu. And by Elwood Thompsons, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market. Proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for 25 years, Elwood Thompsons. Located at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from NPR member station Aspen Public Radio is Kenneth Edelman, who sports one of the thickest CVs in foreign relations. Okay, wait for it. For starters, he was right by President Reagan 30 years ago during his historic Reykjavik summit with Mikhail Gorbachev. For five years, he ran the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. Ken was also deputy U.S. ambassador to the U.N. for almost three years. Forty years ago, he was assistant to none other than then U.S. Defense Secretary Don Rumsfeld, back when disco was king and all grown men smoked pipes. Uh, Does that sound accurate? It sounds accurate to me. (laughs) Today, Ken Edelman is ours for the hour. Welcome, good sir. How are you? Thank you, Robin. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. I just want to get your temperature uh, in light of all your experience uh, in the Cold War with Ronald Reagan, with the Ford administration, with everything that happened in the late 70s and the United States and Russia and Afghanistan. What's been going through your mind since these revelations have come out um, for the better part of the past month that Russia under Vladimir Putin has interfered with our election rather intimately
1: here in the United States? More outrage than anything else. Uh I think it's for a foreign country, especially a hostile foreign country like Russia, to be interfering in our elections um, is, I think, pretty well set by the community, the intelligence community, that that's something that happened. More controversial and a little fuzzier is whether their interference was to help Donald Trump win or not. It seems like the consensus is growing that that's the case. Whether that made a material difference – In the critical turn states that he won, those Midwest states, uh, Wisconsin and Michigan and um, Minnesota, you know, is impossible to tell and will always be impossible to tell. But the basics of a hostile foreign country interfering with our uh, election, that's an outrageous situation and it should be not only investigated, but if it turns out to be true, there should be uh, sanctions involved.
0: Well, for starters, why are they still considered a hostile foreign country? This is not evil empire, going back to the words of of Ronald Reagan, which you helped craft after all. I mean, this is a country that's a major oil-producing country. It's since been inducted into the League of, what, Brazil, Russia, India, China, major emerging market players. It is nominally a democracy, even though it does quite autocratic things in for example, Ukraine and, and other parts of, of Europe, it's helped uh, the Assad regime in Syria beat back a rebellion rather brutally. But how do we still define them as a hostile
1: nation? You are right, Robin, that it is not a uh, country like the Soviet Union at the time of Reykjavik 30 years ago that had a uh, awesome nuclear arsenal, had an ideology that was very appealing to some people around the world, even those in different uh, cultures like the Cubans or the Vietnamese or the Cambodians, etc. cetera. Uh, and it was not, you know, a um, economy that people took really uh, seriously. Now it is a country with probably uh, one third of the nuclear weapons it had, probably 25 percent, an economy that's probably smaller than Italy, an ideology that's just Russian nationalism. So it's a shadow of its former self it- except in one respect, Robin, and that is it has a leader that punches above his weight. Putin uh, has become a big deal on the international scene, uh, not because of the assets that he has under him, which is usually the requirement of becoming a big deal, but the audacity of his moves. And his moves are audacious in seizing foreign territory, as in Crimea, uh Participating in a Middle East war, uh, overtly, that the United States has been against the Soviet Union, participating in a Middle East war since 1973, at least, uh, when Nixon warned against that, and um, controlling his country with an autocratic, if not totalitarian, hand and um, doing whatever he can around the world that is hostile to the United States. So it is a littler entity than the Soviet Union, but uh, a lot meaner than it was during the Gorbachev years or even the latter Brezhnev years.
0: Ken, will you walk me back to some kind of uh, you know, 25 years of, of Russian history, if you will? There was a control for power in the early 90s. There was a peaceful handoff, you would think, from Mikhail Gorbachev to the kind of the, the Yeltsin years and whatnot. There was an aborted military coup, I believe, in 91. But uh, the, when I first timestamped this is late 98, when the Russians defaulted and, and devalued. And Boris Yeltsin was literally teetering. And there was an enormous vacuum for influence in that country, both economically and politically. And 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 power was kind of ceded to the oligarchs. And Putin filled that vacuum. Now, oil was about $10 a barrel uh, at, at, you know, at that time in late 1998. It soared to something north of $140 in 2008. And you would think that that country's power and credibility kind of moves linearly with the price of oil, its chief export. But now that oil has kind of come back down to earth, the world is very different. It's not a traditional, you know, black versus white, Cold War, good versus evil element. From where does this guy's national popularity come from? Why does he have so much longevity at home in terms of public opinion?
1: is not because he delivers the goods and has a successful economy he has no successful economy they do rely almost entirely on oil it's it's uh, and his government is a kind of kleptocracy but he does two things very very well he controls the media and he controls the media message he controls the media so that people have freedom of speech on the street but all the media outlets are Um, straight propaganda, uh, telling about Putin, telling about uh, how great the Soviet government is. And he controls the message, which is, we were wronged. It is outrageous that the Soviet Union ended. Uh, These other countries, especially the United States, are hostile countries. They're doing things that endanger the Russian security. And uh, they will get us every time we they can, and so it is a um, increase in an inflammation of hostile views of the world, and therefore you need a strong leader to rescue us, the Russians, he would say, from this hostile um, environment, and he's done that very well, and it works. And so while the economy is going down and down and down, it's not plummeting, but it's really worse than it was five years ago, and people's living condition is worse than it was five years ago, still standing up in the international community saying that they were wronged, which is uh, feeding into a a psychological outlook of Russian people, that they are oppressed, that they are wronged, that they are uh, somehow victims on the international stage. That's very popular stuff
0: even if you're not delivering on the goods, even if the economy has stagnated and and people haven't benefited from, say, the the huge explosion in oil prices.
1: That's right, Robin. We in the West tend to be more Marxist in our outlook. Uh, By that, I mean more Marxist that Marx said that the economic conditions condition what uh, people believe, OK? The Russians, I don't think, ever believed that, that people can suffer economically and still believe that the leader is great because he is standing up to the. Uh, well, did they not take out the czar
0: and, and, and shoot and kill him a hundred years ago? I mean, you would think, you know, from my you know seventh grade, eighth grade world history read that this is a country that actually could have a huge populist reflex and could be angered if you're looking at say 20, 25 years of a huge uh, a disparity between the super halves in the former Soviet Union and the have-nots or the have-lesses.
1: Yes, but, but they can be angered, but they can be angered by the hostile environment and the enemies out there uh, seemingly just as easily or more easily than they're angered by their declining economic um, welfare. And so the uh, the idea that the empire and the people in Russia can be angered is absolutely true. It depends on what they're angered about. And Putin has been very good at describing how they should be angered about what the United States does here and there, angered about what the Europeans are doing, angered about the sanctions that leave his country poor. And that leads to another point that he always makes, that the economic decline of Russia is due to the hostile West. So that fits into his overall view.
0: Will you walk me through? I, I think what the general consensus may have been in the Kremlin of what a Hillary Clinton presidency would have met. Would she just have been more vigilant? Would she have called Putin out more on, on BS? Kind of being a veteran diplomat and 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 knowing about Putin during the you know latter stage of the Clinton years. I mean, what was the big enough fear about her presidency that they dared get involved in this kind of uh, you know almost sci-fi homeland
1: screenplay type uh, war games through cyber security? From my perspective, it was that, A, she's knowledgeable about what Russia is doing around the world, where um, President-elect Trump was not knowledgeable about that. B, she had experience dealing with Putin, who can betray her at at every time, and even when he agrees on things, um, just betrays the agreement and violates it. And Trump went through the campaign saying only nice things about Putin— And has apparently a a great number of, according to his son, of economic dealings in Russia. So they had the known entity of Hillary Clinton that was going to challenge what Russia really wanted to do. And they had the unknown entity, Donald Trump, that was trying to make nice and sounded awfully friendly to um, Putin. And so they obviously rationally went – and said, let's go with the unknown that seems you know, willing to uh, give us another chance or doesn't care that much about human rights, doesn't care that much about our invading other countries, doesn't care that much about our military involvement in Syria, doesn't care that much about our hacking U.S. systems to influence the election. Trump said at one point that he encouraged the Russians to hack the – Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign, which was really one of the many hundreds of outrageous things he said during the campaign.
0: There must have been several moments during this campaign and I I think, you know, right now in the process up in the interregnum that— you're wondering, what would Ronald Reagan have said? How would he have reacted about this? I mean, Trump was a known quantity to Reagan back then as a, maybe a garish millionaire, as a, as a as a Wall Street person, as a Manhattan person. Uh, but it was equally as as shocking to people in the late 70s and early 80s that this famous character from Hollywood emerged as leader of the free world, Ronald Reagan. I know you can't necessarily channel him, I mean, barring an amazing seance, but I, I wonder what your thinking is about that. Like, what his reaction would have been to the whole you know, Manchurian candidate controversy that has exploded and and the intrigue between Moscow and D.C. and Trump.
1: In December of 1987, Robin, Mikhail Gorbachev came to Washington, D.C. The United States Secretary of State George Shultz gave a lunch at the State Department seventh floor, which is absolutely beautiful, in honor of Mrs. and Mikhail Gorbachev. We were honored to be invited to that lunch. And at my small table at the lunch for Mikhail Gorbachev, I was supposed to be hosting the uh, table. At my table was Barbara Walters and a a New York developer named Donald Trump. Uh, It was the only time my wife said that during an entire lunch I could not get a word in edgewise because Barbara Walters talked the whole time and Donald Trump talked the whole time. And so um, he was there as, you know, just a part of the establishment, basically. I had no idea at that time that he had any political ambitions besides just getting lots of publicity, which has always been an obsession with him. But I think that, uh, that Ronald Reagan, uh, the model Ronald Reagan set for politics was very, very different than the one picked up by Trump, even though a lot of Republicans, and I consider myself a good and solid Republican, but a Reagan Republican. A lot of Republicans like to compare Trump to Reagan. I just don't see the comparison at all. For one thing, Ronald Reagan was a very kind person. He um, really never went after anybody personally, and um, he just didn't like those who did go after anybody personally. And, and of
0: course, that golden rule of Reagan is—
1: The 11th commandment, and it was never speak badly about another Republican— And it was impossible. But Reagan never spoke badly about anybody. And uh, even when he was running against President Carter, I was involved as a foreign policy advisor in the 1980 election, when he was running against Carter, he would always phrase it that the Carter administration is doing this, the Carter team is doing this. He never would be pointed uh, personally. Secondly, he understood that the Russians were uh, up to no good that they were an evil empire. It's not such an empire now. But uh, he came in with the idea that Russia was uh, an adversary, not that Russia was good, a friend or the leader of Russia could be a good friend of the United States. And um, he cared deeply about you know the intelligence community. He would never despair that. He uh, treated everybody with uh, great, great respect. He had an ideology of where the country should be heading and where he wanted the country to be heading. In all these respects, Donald Trump is um, contrary to the Reagan model.
0: Now, shift me to the here and now. What's your read on uh, Trump's pick as Rex Tillerson, the CEO of Vexon Mobil, as his secretary of state. I mean, it's controversial in many elements in how close he is to Vladimir Putin. He received an award from Putin personally. He's negotiated on huge deals with Russia between Exxon. Exxon by itself is not just a multinational. It's almost like a country if you look at it in terms of its proven reserves and its negotiating clout. So, you know, you can say that he has kind of led more than a state. He's led this this almost like this nation state, this petro state, uh, so that he's experienced. But there's a lot of discomfort in in, in his you know, proximity with with Putin.
1: I share that discomfort, Robin. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea to accept an award from someone like Putin. I would never expect uh, anybody to accept an award. In fact, I couldn't stand it when the Duke of Windsor uh, historically in the 30s accepted an award from Goebbels in um, Nazi Germany uh, to accept an award like that in giving some legitimacy to the bestower of that award. Uh, Secondly, I don't like the idea that he was against sanctions, although that is a common kind of business approach to be against sanctions. Sanctions have been effective over the years, and um, they're not solving a problem, but they're increasing the cost of doing uh, something as bad as going into Crimea and taking parts of another country. And if the sanctions had no effect on people, then uh, they wouldn't bellyache so much and complain so much about those sanctions that I think the sanctions did a lot about uh, for our policy towards Iran and um, are doing something towards our policy about Russia. Thirdly, I, I, maybe I'm too traditional in this respect, um, but I do like somebody as the number one diplomat of the United States to have some kind of diplomatic experience. Now, what does this mean? This means seeing things from a national perspective rather than a business perspective or a one-business perspective. So I'm not saying that they had to be in the State Department before that because we've had some wonderful um, secretaries of state, George Shultz being one, Henry Kissinger being another, Dean Acheson. We're just wonderful, wonderful people who could or could not have been uh, experienced in – you know, diplomacy, but they they certainly had government experience before that time. They had a feel for a diplomatic uh, approach to problems, and they had a national perspective rather than a uh, more confined business or one-business perspective. So uh, I'm not saying if I were a senator, I, I would vote against Tillerson, but I'd be very skeptical about the whole thing, and I would really, really drive me up the wall if he starts saying these, pro-Putin things that he said in the past.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to veteran diplomat Ken Edelman, who also authored the – really, I mean, if there's anything close to like a spellbinding or cliffhanging type uh, book about diplomacy, it's definitely Reagan at Reykjavik. You have to pick up this book.
1: I heard somewhere that it's being adapted into a movie or an HBO series? That is correct. Uh, Michael Douglas is dying to play Reagan and we're getting the money and the funding for that now. Uh, I was in Reykjavik on the 30th anniversary of the summit, and there's a wonderful Icelandic director, Baltasar Kormakur, who is dying to direct the movie, and so we have things lining up for the movie, and it would be it would be a gripping account because what Reagan did over the weekend uh, in Reykjavik uh, 30 years ago was just so impressive, and uh, they he talked to. Gorbachev. This is at the height of the Cold War for 10 and a half hours. And if you ever want to see Ronald Reagan raw, uh, see what really makes him tick, see uh, his leadership style in a way that I think is pretty spellbinding and pretty um, fast moving and pretty exciting. You'll see what he did on the 48 hours in Reykjavik that uh, 30 years ago, I thought, brought the end of the Cold War.
0: In honor of that milestone 30 years ago, incidentally, I had an Icelandic yogurt this morning before I came to the studio. Good. I'm I'm glad
1: you you supported Iceland.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's actually more than that. I caught you on CNN uh, a week ago, uh, the series The 80s, which really had that spellbinding moment. I think that they didn't give you enough time and that's why I wanted to hunt you down. It turns out you're in Colorado. You've got to come on my show this week. Everybody is talking about the – almost the dystopian – really ripped from sci-fi, ripped from homeland headlines that we're hearing about the United States and Russia right now, I do want to shift to the um, tragic situation in Syria, which is inextricably linked to U.S. relations right now with uh, Russia and Russia's clout in uh, places like Syria with the Assad regime, with Iran, which is allied with Russia to to train um, government troops and and anti-rebel troops in Syria. I'm haunted by something that you wrote In the wake of the Iraq disaster here, and I saw it in Vanity Fair. It said, You believe that neoconservatism itself, what you define as the quote, the idea of a tough foreign policy on behalf of morality, the idea of using our power for moral good in the world, close quote, is dead, at least for a generation. After Iraq, quote, it's not going to sell. And if you had your time over again, if you could go back to 2003 and you had any indication of how much the Bush administration, Bush 43, was going to wing this historic invasion of Iraq, you said, quote, I would write an article that would be skeptical over whether there would be a performance that would be good enough to implement our policy. The policy can be absolutely right and noble, beneficial. But if you can't execute it, it's useless. It's useless. Just useless. I guess that's what I would have said that Bush's arguments are absolutely right, but you know what? You just have to put them in the drawer marked can't do. And that's very different from let's go, close quote. I want you to tie that together to what we're seeing in Syria right now. That there seems to be in the United States, my read is that the Obama administration drew a red line with chemical weapons and Secretary of State John Kerry after Hillary Clinton came in and gave Uh, the Assad regime a way out, largely with the help of Moscow. And then that gave the regime a blank check for the past two, three years to bombard the heck out of places like Aleppo to um, largely stage arguably crimes against humanity and and really go over the line just in the interest of of us not having to deal with another imbroglio like Iraq.
1: I became a neoconservative early in my career, actually. And uh, it grew out of the whole saying of never again after World War II.
0: After the Holocaust.
1: Yes. We shouldn't be standing by while horrendous, horrendous uh, genocidal deeds are happening and do nothing. We, we have a uh, share of guilt. There was this case in Brooklyn uh, of this woman, I forgot her name, uh, in the 60s that was attacked on the street. And some 30 people heard her screams and did nothing about it. They they didn't even call the police. And I think that we have a responsibility as human beings when we have such power, when we can, at uh, not an enormous kind of uh, cost, but when we can uh, help people in dire need. And that's been the situation in Syria for the last five years when uh, hospitals and all have been bombed. Uh, And uh, brutalized by all kinds of attacks. The big mistake, I think, of the Obama administration, to back up just a little bit, was in 2009 when there were protesters on the streets in Tehran really threatening the government of Iran. The United States did nothing verbally or materially to help those protesters.
0: Now walk that back for a minute because it was read that the the very seeds of the Arab Spring and and, uh, upheaval in the Middle East began with his tour, um, you know, in his first whatever, two, three hundred days of office. That he came out, he gave this speech in front of the pyramids in Egypt and little did he know that the following year would see unprecedented revolt uh, by the Middle Eastern Street. I'm not just talking about the Arab Street, but you saw what happened in, in Iran. It's now largely forgotten, June 2009, that that regime faced its biggest crisis since coming to power you know, 20 years before that, or uh, you know, what was it, in, in 1979. Uh, but the Obama regime opted to not, I mean, you could send your best thoughts and you can say we support the people. But what else could it have done in that he was elected, I think, in a mandate to not continue the sins of Iraq to not have an interventionist foreign policy?
1: you could have done two things. Number one is give verbal support, saying that he, as President Reagan did during the years of the Cold War, saying history is on the side of the protesters and not the jailers. Uh, secondly, you can give all kinds of covert aid to help them communicate with one another. Uh, in the 1980s, it was mimeograph machines. Here it would be uh, facilities to Uh, beam your cell phone videos or to, you know, just uh, get out the message of the protesters and some of the planning of the protesters, where to be on what street at what time. And there's ways to uh, increase the communications among them to really make a headache for the government of Iran. Iran survived that, got stronger because of it. The uh, Terrible government in Iran. Again,
0: all you had to do was open fire. All you had to do was take prisoners. I mean, it, and and if you're not gonna if you're not gonna back those strong words and the bully pulpit and the moral suasion with the true threat of force, it's like a currency that's not backed by gold or specie. You know.
1: Yeah, I, I just don't agree with that. I think that you had people Iranians so outraged at their government there that the kind of help we could give. I don't know if it would have succeeded in overthrowing the government. I don't know if it would have succeeded in fundamentally changing uh, the government policies. But unless you try something like that, you uh, are certainly going to fail. So it was a known failure for doing nothing. It was an unknown possible success if you actually did something. And I'm not talking about boots on the ground or sending in troops or sending in uh, military arms. We didn't do any of that with Poland in 1979, 1980 or uh, previous times. But we certainly gave them verbal support and certainly gave them, um, like I say, covert mimeograph machines and, and other devices of those, those eras to spread their message about Iran. As I said, not only survived the um, protests in the street, but got stronger on it. They became more and more involved in Syria so that Syria um, relied on their help, and all the extremist groups that Iran has uh, ties with, Hezbollah and uh, other groups, and um, really turned around for Assad uh, the war effort when Putin and Russia saw that the United States really did nothing uh, in, you know, to back the protesters and the reformers in Iran. Uh, They jumped into a Middle East war in a way that they haven't since at least the 1970s and uh, in a more vigorous way than they ever have in history and rescued the Assad regime instead of um, helping out in some way to make a change in that horrendous, horrendous regime. And so you had a situation where the United States, because it was broadcasting and flashing its weakness on the international stage encouraged aggressions. I said, you know, and I wrote for Secretary Rumsfeld when I was a speechwriter in the mid-70s in the Pentagon, um, that weakness is provocative, that strength deters.
0: How should we have channeled more strength? I remember Obama drawing a red line. I remember the horrific footage. And you talk about never again. Um, you know, I am Jewish. I'm a person who grew up uh, you know, in, in Hebrew school and Sunday school looking at 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 videos of the Shoah of the Holocaust and wondering how previous generations just let this pass by, how FDRs, cabinet and and other leaders of the free world didn't more forcefully intervene to say, you know what, there's a there's a awfully anti human genocidal things going on that just – this is like the battle for the soul of humanity. And when I saw kids writhing in pain after a gas attack in Syria, the fact that um, uh, the Assad regime is a minority which in a, in a majority Sunni country um, effectively crossed the red line that the Obama administration drew and then there was still an out given to the Assad regime, I felt really uneven about that. I feel like uh, you know, they had just called our bluff. And that there should have, if you're going to draw that red line, you better damn well enforce it, especially after something is horrific. I mean, you saw it with Saddam Hussein and the Kurds um, in the in the late '80s, and uh, you know, finally that was tested. That will was tested in '90 90 and '91 with Operation Desert Storm. But take me back to that moment specifically, and and I I feel like historians are going to look at that moment in terms of the Obama foreign policy and say that. What made that so unique? What made that so kind of uniquely weak in terms of the message it sent to the world?
1: Well, I agree with your uh, analogy and I agree with your emotional outrage at the situation. Uh, What could have been done? Like I say, you back up. You could have uh, supported the protesters in Iran so that Iran would not jump in with two feet into Syria. Secondly, you could have given lethal aid to the Syrians uh, fighting the Assad regime early on.
0: Were you convinced that that it was more than a kind of an amorphous group of rebels and and some jihadis who may have had uh, weaknesses for the ISIS message?
1: I was convinced that, um, A, you really didn't know a makeup of a group. I was convinced that you couldn't do worse than the Assad regime and what it was doing. And I was convinced that if you created a situation where – the main ally of Iran and soon to be of Russia was knocked off in the Middle East, that would send a very good signal. So I was convinced of those three things. Uh, What followed after that, you just can't tell. But if you believe my second premise, that uh, it couldn't be worse than Assad. I also believe that there is something that's awfully important in international doings in international affairs, and that is kind of moral support, telling people this is the right side, this is the wrong side. And I remember in 1987 when we were going around in Moscow talking to dissidents there and people like Sharansky who had spent years and years.
0: Anatoly Sharansky.
1: Yeah, in jail, and him saying how much it meant to hear the kind of speeches we gave at the United Nations, how much it meant that Ronald Reagan was always talking about those dissidents. And one of them came up to me in Moscow, actually during a Seder in, in April of 1987 when I was there with Secretary Schultz. A fellow came up and said that um, he had heard that for the years he was in jail as a dissident. And um, he said, You have to understand – he was talking to the two of us but mostly to Secretary Schultz. He said, you have to understand, Secretary Schultz, you are just about the only thing we had going for us during those years. Now, he didn't mean Secretary Schultz. He didn't even mean President Ronald Reagan. He meant the United States of America.
0: And I don't know if this is a a case of kind of post hoc ergo propter hoc. If we look at the lessons of Iraq and, yes, we botched it just from a management 101 perspective and you've been really outspoken about – um, you know the the cacophony in the Bush forty three White House and how Rumsfeld was at odds with Condi Rice and other people and if there was unanimity in planning and a single mission that like if we're going to do this and we're going to undertake this massive surgery we better get it right and have contingencies. But I think one of the lessons emerging from Iraq is that I don't know if it's a false lesson that it's necessarily binary if you're looking at Arab regimes. Uh, in the Middle East that have been largely created in this artificial construct of of Westerners and, and tribes drawing borders, that if you're trying to transition them to something resembling democracy today, it's not going to work. Uh, the best case scenario you have, I think where Putin might disagree with you, is you could do a lot worse actually than an Assad in Syria, that if you take him out, you'll have an analogous situation to Iraq. All of these different tribes jumping into the vacuum, wanting to kill each other, wanting to divvy up the borders, take the spoils. What do you? What, what's your read on that? Obviously, Iraq was really singular, and it's only so analogous to Syria. Uh, you can only take so many lessons. But necessarily, I find that the country and, and the West and NATO and everybody else is trigger shy after the disaster in Iraq.
1: I think that's right. They are trigger shy, and I can understand that. But you can't say it's always going to be worse. You have some situations that Got worse, you had some situations that got better. I mean, certainly after Nasser was overthrown uh, in Egypt or uh, Sadat took over, it, it was a better situation. It was better because Sadat was a better leader. It was better because Sadat was on our side uh, in that critical uh, country. And so there was success. Um, you had a situation where the succession of governments in South Korea there were authoritarian. Uh, under Park and for, you know, a lot of the 50s and the 60s. And it's become a thriving, vibrant democracy right now. Uh, the same for Taiwan. Uh, it was a um, uh, kind of a awful place in terms of authoritarian rule for years and years. became a thriving democracy now. So countries can turn out okay and do better, um, you know, with the proper support from us, with the proper... Kind of moral backing on that. But to say that Syria will be divided and uh, a mess like Iraq today, uh, well, it's divided and a mess today. But the only new thing is that you have jet planes, Russian planes, bombing hospitals and uh, wiping out kids and doing the most horrendous things. You wouldn't have those Russian planes. Uh, anyway, if you had just a kind of civil war like you have um, in parts of uh, Iraq today.
0: Now, tell me about the UN and NATO. I mean, aren't these supposed to be fail-safes or multilateral uh, emergency plans for situations just like this? When we think back to Rwanda, we think back to the situation in Bosnia, um, other huge missed opportunities, the dirty war in Argentina. I mean, you name it, where there could have been multilateralist intervention, um, there's nothing like that. In fact, uh, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. yesterday is kind of pretty much saying to to, um, Assad and to Moscow and Putin, gentlemen, have you no shame. I mean, that's really what we've been reduced to.
1: That's what the U.N. is good at doing is giving speeches. And it also, to be fair, is good at giving some kind of uh, relief to refugees and to victims of um, aggression and outrageous behavior and and murder, basically. Uh, So they have played a role and a very good role in that respect. As far as peacekeeping, uh, the UN has been less successful in ongoing conflicts. They've been more successful in— Uh, conflicts that could have been but aren't hot conflicts, more cold conflicts, and putting a few Fijis and other as peacekeepers between the um, potentially uh, hostile countries when both sides do agree. So you can't look at the UN to solve something like Syria. You can look at the UN to give a thousand speeches on Syria, which uh, Assad is very good at ignoring and the Russians couldn't care less about. As far as NATO is concerned, NATO is a defensive uh, alliance, of course, as you know, and they are concerned about territorial integrity, especially of Western European countries. And NATO was uh, activated and um, it was good that it was activated after Russia took part of Ukraine and saying that is exactly the kind of aggression, taking territory from another country. Uh, that is very hostile and is very worrisome because— What
0: did NATO do about it,
1: though? Well, they, they slapped on sanctions. The Europeans did join us on good, I think, pretty powerful, more than expected sanctions uh, to Russia that has hurt the Russian economy, so much so that Putin has been complaining about it ever since. Now, Ken, what about that mechanism? Did I read this incorrectly with
0: Wesley Clark, I think, repelling down a mountain in NATO's intervention with after the Srebrenica massacre, that it was used in a way as a kind of a humanitarian uh, um, backstop? Is that outside of its purview? Is it just maintaining the border, the territorial integrity of the member nations?
1: No, because that was a European kind of conflict, a European, actually, European conflict, and uh, we were involved in that because... It was uh, territorial in Europe itself and there was a massacre going on. So there was um, other elements, different elements than Syria today.
0: Anything more than words that can save the women and children of of Aleppo and eastern Aleppo? I mean you're seeing reports. I don't know if they're confirmed or if Doctors Without Borders or the Red Cross is going to come out and and confirm them of, of summary executions of rapes, of children being killed of this being really the rape and, and pillaging the final the, the, the final stand for the rebels of Syria and
1: eastern Aleppo as we speak. If we haven't done anything up to, what is it now, uh, 400,000 deaths in that country, is that about right, Robin?
0: Uh, I've heard several hundred thousand.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very unlikely that we're going to do much uh, in the future. I, I would say that uh, the new administration has a chance— to stand up and uh, to really be counted in that kind of moral uh, situation and geostrategic kind of situation. But I see, ne- A, no great morality outlook for the incoming team, especially by President-elect Trump. And secondly, no real appetite to stand up to Russia, uh, just the opposite. It's a uh, team that whole mantra is, let's see if we can get along. Well, let me just tell you, you can get along with anybody as long as you let them do what they want and agree with the, what their view of the world is. So there's no problem in getting along. You can get along with the worst person in the world to say, you know, I, I'm just going to agree with that person and whatever he wants to do is fine by me. That's getting along. That's not an objective of life.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Ken Edelman, veteran diplomat, uh, trusted deputy of Ronald Reagan, uh, 30 years ago at the Reykjavik summit that led to uh, a huge chapter in disarmament between the United States and the former Soviet Union. Uh, Ken, I did read something in The Atlantic by Peter Beinart, who you know, um, regarding Trump's turn toward Moscow and what it's done to kind of the internal political dynamics here in the United States. He said, Many civilizational conservatives who once deposed the Soviet Union because of its atheism now view Putin's Russia as Christianity's front line against a new civilizational enemy, Islam. What's your read on that? This is kind of a, a really starkly almost cynical real politic view that, you know, I have to judge which enemy is more worse if I'm, I'm I'm kind of looking at radioactive waste versus biomedical waste, which is the lesser of two evils. It almost seems like a like a uh, you know Secretary Kissinger read, like the world is not how our hearts necessarily want it, but you just gotta you know or to paraphrase i I think it was your old boss that said it. you go to war with the army you have
1: I think that's kind of a ridiculous approach that uh, the one that you're referring to in the Atlantic Monthly uh It's ridiculous to think of Russia being friendly because they're Christian and Islam being hostile because uh or Syria or um Iran. Being hostile because they're Islamic, I just don't see
0: it. But it, you know, even the Republican Party here, there's no unanimity. You talk to a Brent Scowcroft or, or James Baker, seems to, you know, endorse this selection as his fellow Texan, um, Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. But this has exposed really deep divides even within the Republican Party. The old, the old designations of neocon and uh, realist and populists and everything are almost kind of thrown out the window. All of these people who tried to debate these things in a semi-coherent way in the primaries, there, you have to agree that foreign policy was somewhat short shrifted and it was so striking to see Jeb Bush, candidate Jeb Bush, come out and try to argue on behalf of some sort of amnesty for immigration or we need to have a more thoughtful foreign policy and Trump just talking over him and saying, what do you know? Look what your brother did in Iraq, and I'm thinking about Ronald Reagan's, you know, 11th commandment when all that has happened. There's been very little space for thoughtful dialogue about foreign policy in a, in a world where kind of multilateralism
1: is falling apart. I think you had two problems, uh, Robin. Number one is that there was very little airtime given to foreign policy because it was so much insulting during the uh, 2016 campaign. Secondly, the foreign policy, as it became clear from Donald Trump was exactly opposite from the foreign policy of Republicans traditionally through the years. Uh, traditionally, the uh, Republicans have been more hardline and the Democrats more let's try to get along with people. Uh, now, in this time, you have our Democrats saying in uh, in the Senate especially with Rex Tillerson that we're, they're going to have very – uh, hard kind of confirmation hearings and really test him because he seems to be too soft on Russia. They're calling for an investigation in what the Russian hacking, where the Republicans, the hardline party of the past, has been under Trump anyway, saying, let's just get along and forget about it, all these past transgressions uh, of Russia and let's see if we can build a new relationship. Uh, so there really was a role reversal. The, the Republicans have traditionally been very, very pro-NATO. Uh, Trump questions the existence of NATO uh, or the utility of NATO. The Republicans have traditionally been anti-nuclear uh, proliferation, letting, having other countries get the bomb, where Trump's view is let them get the bomb. Let's see what happens on that. I think that's a outrageous position and certainly not willing to have the bomb spread around the world. Uh, Other, you know, Republicans have traditionally been for um, a a military buildup, and in that respect, uh, Trump has been more traditional, saying that the military needs to uh, build up. But Republicans have generally respected the military expertise and respected military leaders, where Trump during the campaign— we're saying that uh, he knew more about foreign policy and security issues than any of these generals and casting doubt about the um, knowledge and the ability of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, since that time, since becoming president-elect, he has in, uh, av- obviously uh, invited a lot of uh, ex-generals into his cabinet, so his words during the campaign about... Ignoring the advice of generals wasn't followed through while he in the transition period where he respected generals enough to appoint them to uh, high positions like Mattis as secretary of defense, uh, Flynn as national security advisor and others in his administration.
0: Ken Adelman, you've lectured at Georgetown and and been kind of invited the world over to consult about foreign policy and and various issues in the international arena. I want to get uh, kind of a a primer on what some of the other checks and balances might be um, toward uh, what we might see as encroachment from Russia and Putin vis-a-vis what we have here in the United States. Trump goes into office with a majority – In both the House and the Senate, are there a handful of senators or committee people who can really put the test or, for example, this 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 renaissance of electoral college uh, interest for the past two weeks that Hamilton actually designated for the electors to come out and become faithless and actually exert a subjective uh, power, almost like an implied check over um, other forces in the country if somebody is 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 seen to be under the influence of a, a foreign regime?
1: On the electoral college, which may be off the subject (laughs) you want to stay on for this interview.
0: No, no. It really is, though, because it's at the nexus of domestic policy and foreign policy. If the electors out there, state-by-state people, sense that there is something going on that's not kosher, that their votes are not just rubber stamps, that they might have a duty to do something else, to be an extra check on the system.
1: To me, that's pie in the sky. They will be rubber stamps, and next Monday, they will gather... Uh, together because they're party stalwarts basically they're uh-huh. the people that have been selected because they come to all the party uh, conventions uh, they give money to the party they love the party it's the main thing in
0: their life part party stalwarts are not allowed to be apoplectic if, if there's credible intelligence even the cia saying that we had uh russia uh you know not just superficially interfere with our election but rather there was some heavy lifting
1: yeah that's what you may do robin if you were an elector but that's not what the electors are going to do They're going to do because they were on the Trump for president campaign or Hillary Clinton for president campaign because they're uh, stalwart Republicans or stalwart Democrats because their state voted for the candidate that they love. Uh, They're going to come to Washington or come to their capitals actually and uh, vote in a rubber stamp kind of way for uh, the winner of you know, that state. Then then take me to the foreign policy
0: elder statesmen and stateswomen of the Senate and the House. Are, do any exist? Are there anybody there who would kind of have to keep a, uh, you know, a gimlet eye, have to stay especially vigilant if they think that a foreign regime is, is steamrolling over, you know, our candidate?
1: Yes. And you will have hearings and you will have Senate speeches and you will have uh, appearances on the Sunday talk shows and you will have lots of interviews by uh, – McCain and Lindsey Graham and uh, all all people like that in the Senate, even Democrats in the Senate, uh, who are questioning, you know, Trump's approach. But does it really matter? Not much, to tell you the truth. Uh, He can—a president can override those kind of uh, chatter, and it is kind of chatter. Uh, The the hearings can be a little more important. Uh, The power of the purse can be a little more important. Uh, but um, generally, in foreign policy, the president has a lot of of uh, real power. Getting back for one second on Hamilton and the Electoral College. The Electoral College has evolved in such a way that is very, very different from what the Founding Fathers wanted. The Founding Fathers wanted the— platonic view that the wise men of the United States, and that they was all men, (laughs) would come together and choose the absolute best person to be president for um, the country uh, from whatever sectors they were in. So uh, it could be a business person, it could be a theologian, it could be, uh, you know, any kind of person. So this was a platonic idea. Let's just get the uh, philosopher-citizen- the uh, practical person of ideas to be chosen in that way. It never worked out that way, except maybe for the two elections of George Washington. And partisan politics started early in the life of the country in a way that the founding fathers either didn't um, foresee or didn't acknowledge in any way and um, may have been surprised by, but uh, certainly did not include it. So it's very interesting thinking how great the Constitution of the United States is and it really is a great, great document that really has uh, withstood now 245 years or whatever. Um, But the one thing that you want from a constitution, namely a practical and effective way of choosing a good leader to be president of the leader of the country, uh, that really was never in the Constitution and uh, they just missed it on that score. Uh, And so while we value the Constitution very highly, the one thing it really should have done, which is how do we choose a good leader, uh, it failed to do. And that's why after 1800, there were political parties involved. There were state elections involved. Then we got to the whole idea of electors not being wise men to choose the wisest of the men as our leader – but as representatives of parties in states and uh, however that state voted, all the electoral uh, votes for uh, would go to the candidate that they loved.
0: Now, we saw many lessons from the Iraq and Broglie of how uh, much of this was a function of how Langley and uh, Foggy Bottom uh, really – competed in a a non-healthy way for the attentions of of George W. Bush. And then you throw in Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld and there were blocks, uh, you know, not in terms of of, of suasion and how do we convince this guy with the right arguments, but almost a little more Machiavellian than you would expect from the executive branch. What do you see as the fomenting relationship between Donald Trump and uh, the CIA and the State Department? I mean, we saw a tweet from Donald Trump just a few days ago that – kind of something tantamount to who's the CIA to accuse this of happening of of the intrigue with Russia they were the ones who botched the intelligence on Iraq. I mean to see that out of the gate is certainly
1: surreal and eye-opening. One of the um, to me most depressing parts of our president-elect and I'm still optimistic that he can do a better job than I expect uh, and um, to me that's a very low bar. but uh, one of the most depressing Aspects is a lack of real intellectual curiosity about issues. Uh, when you have a CIA to, for which we spend was it fifty billion dollars a year, sixty billion dollars a year to um, come up with information that you cannot come up with by watching television, um, I think it could be very valuable and is very valuable for not just the president but the uh, the political leaders of the country. I learned a lot during the years that I was given a security briefing every single morning for about a half hour or 40 minutes on what had happened recently and then some longer-term trends. And um, it helped establish my views of the thing because knowledge is important and knowledge can give you a feeling of you know where things might be going. Uh, and uh, you're a lot better off To know these things than to not know these things, even if you may disagree with a conclusion that the intelligence community comes up with. And your disagreement can be very genuine, but you have to have some kind of facts to back that up uh, rather than just a gut feeling that uh, somehow they're wrong. So I I really see that, uh, to me, a president uh, really needs the intelligence community to help guide him uh, on where to go in terms of policy. And uh, the fact that the President-elect Trump has dismissed the intelligence community and mocked the, one some of the things that they got wrong in the past, uh, to me is very depressing.
0: Now, Trump's quote specifically to Chris Wallace of Fox News uh, when he pressed him on his, his intellectual curiosity, especially about foreign policy was, you know, I get, first of all, these are very good people that are giving me the briefings. And I say, if something should change from this point, immediately call me. I'm available on one minute's notice. I don't have to be told, you know. I'm like a smart person. I don't have to be told the same thing in the same words every single day for the next eight years. Could be eight years, but eight years. Um, and if you go down to this quote, he says, I don't need to be told, Chris, the same thing every day, every morning about the daily presidential brief. Uh, this is for a person who is a businessman, a, you know, an, an MBA. You know, He comes in ad- admittedly not being – steeped in the ways of foreign policy. But that at the very outset, uh, I think, had a lot of people alarmed, Ken. And I, I, you know, in a few minutes left, I just want to get your thoughts on what this bodes for U.S. foreign policy, how this reads to foreign leaders, both, both allies and, and people on the fence and, and nefarious people like, you know, North Korea, Pyongyang. I mean, if this guy's not curious, am I getting a, a, a
1: free pass? It's kind of ridiculous to say that uh, he doesn't need to hear every day the same uh, intelligence briefing. Uh, by what information does he get it that uh, the intelligence briefing would be the same every day? You know, no one can be that stupid as to brief a president on the same material or the same even problem. What the presidents in the past have been uh, awestruck about was the variety of information, the difference of issues that come their way all the time, that one day it has to be North Korea, the other time it has to be something happening in Venezuela and something happening in Syria, as we've talked about, uh, what the latest uh, developments inside Russia are. Some of the global trends are people trying to get the bomb more. Has there been a big refugee flow that we should be concerned about? Is a disease breaking out somewhere that uh, really could endanger uh, all kinds of people? Uh, in places. Uh, Has uh, global warming really upset population uh, migration? I mean, there's so many subjects in the world that the problem of the intelligence community is to try to narrow it down to give the president what he needs, uh, you know, to deal effectively with these problems coming up and it would be such a waste of time and so ridiculous to think that the briefing would be the same every day. To me, it was mind-boggling how different it was, and the variety of subjects, the variety of knowledge that um, you know the people in the intelligence community have, uh, and you know justifiably so because we spend a lot of money on it. Uh, so to me, it, it's um, disconcerting that uh, Trump would even think it's the same briefing every day. It may be the same time by the same institutions briefing him, but the material would be uh, substantially different every day.
0: In the couple of minutes we have left, uh, I just want your predictions on on, on kind of flashpoints, um, areas of of optimism hopefully across the globe. People are talking about a return to – totalitarianism maybe in the philippines Uh, iran as you mentioned has a bigger sphere of influence than it has in in recent memory what with baghdad and damascus Uh, putin might feel emboldened with how uh, how he has kind of from his perspective at least successfully intervened in syria tell me what else we should be watching
1: firstly i am optimistic uh start with the good news optimistic that uh, the Trump administration will stop the movement that I have seen uh, as very threatening over the years for more and more government intervention in the economy and in um, just regulations and stifling uh, economic growth. We need economic growth if we are to be a uh, make America great again. And so I'm optimistic that they're going to do a good job on that. And when you look at the stock market, Since November 8th, a lot of people are optimistic that they're going to do a good job on that. Secondly, I think there's a chance – I wouldn't give it high, but I'm hopeful that it's going to be a chance that a previous relationship or talking nice to Putin would be a uh, way to get cooperation with Putin, not on his terms, but on terms that are international uh, for decency, for non-aggression – for um, humanitarian concerns. Now, am I optimistic on that? Not very, because uh, the fact that Putin has disregarded I, those I kind to, of I values. I just
0: respectfully have to interrupt you on that. When I read in your book that it took the likes of George Schultz, who, by the way, I think just turned 96, to intervene and and have the delicate, almost surgical touch, you have to have a high emotional intelligence. You have to be willing to cede certain things that your ego wouldn't let you do to, to make these extraordinary things like Reykjavik possible. Is it your impression that there's anyone so far in this administration that has – his ear
1: that way? Well, I think that Rex Tillerson could possibly. He seems like a gifted guy. I don't like his views on Russia very much, but he certainly is the type to uh, succeed in business because he listens to others and understands their perspective pretty well. Uh, I think Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis um, is uh, an intellectual, reads lots of books, knows history very well, and understands that you have to understand uh, other perspectives. So the answer could be yes that uh, there are people like that we just didn't know uh, that kind of ability of a, a secretary schultz or others in foreign policy before they did it. So you have to give people a chance to see that uh, and chance to prove themselves that they're able to do that. They understand the incoming administration every member of the incoming administration has to understand A, they have tremendous responsibility for the jobs that they are in. And number two, this will be the pinnacle of their life. This will be, A, the most satisfying thing they ever did, but B, the most important thing they ever did. This is how they will be known to their family and throughout history. And, you know, they have a real serious obligation to get it right.
0: Now, uh, in closing, Ken, as I told you, I've met your grandchildren. They're adorable, those twins. And I wonder kind of when they're of age uh, to hear these famous stories from grandpa, what are you going to first regale them with? In addition to everything you've done with Reagan and the various administrations going back to the early 70s, um, I see that you were national editor of the Washingtonian magazine for 20 years. And this certainly stands out in your bio that (laughs) – talk back to the late Muhammad Ali – uh, you translated for him during the 1974 Rumble in the Jungle heavyweight championship fight in Africa. And then finally, last but certainly not least, alongside your wife, Carol, you teach executive leadership through the wisdom of William Shakespeare with your firm, Movers and Shakespeare's. And to that end, if you could leave us with one line from Shakespeare, any of his plays, any anything you've seen that is indicative of what we need to watch with the Trump administration.
1: Go ahead. Tis Deeds must win the prize. Results are awfully important. You can have all kinds of rhetoric, but Tis Deeds must win the prize.
0: You have been wonderful to come on the show to take time from your vacation out in Colorado. Ken Edelman, you are welcome anytime. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, and It's been a lot of fun.
0: Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can find us on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, and SoundCloud, Twitter at Full D Radio, and Holler if you'd like to sponsor. We are lovers, not fighters, diplomats at heart. Disarmingly multilateral, we tear down these walls. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.